वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकी परमानंदम कृष्णम वंदे जगद्गुरु It's so wonderful. I was just thinking that we get the opportunity to study this, this amazing dialogue between God and man, Sri Krishna and his friend and disciple Arjuna, lost in the mists of antiquity, thousands of years ago, oceans away, civilizations away, and here, yet here we are in the 21st century in Manhattan, uh, studying this amazing dialogue. Just yesterday, we had a visitor, a professor from Penn State, who's writing a book uh, related to ethics and Vedanta. But um, he loves collecting editions of the Gita translations. So he was telling me that he has a whole cabinet, a whole um, cabinet full of different editions of the Gita. <laughs> Yale University last year, they did a a workshop in summer on the Bhagavad Gita and they have started a collection uh, of all the English translations of the Bhagavad Gita. And note that they started a collection, which you can imagine how many English translations there are. Even last year I saw this very nice uh, translation was published, uh, a free translation. It's called God Song, which is a literal translation of Bhagavad Gita, God Song. And there was a review in New York Times where the reviewer said, Apparently, to read the Gita is to be seized by an inordinate desire to translate it. <laughs> I remember, maybe it was about nearly 20 years ago, I was wandering in the foothills of the Himalayas, looking for great masters, spiritual masters, <laughs> and restless to boot, somebody told me that there's this monk you should meet. Um, he was nearly a hundred years old at that time, and I was so restless, I said, later. <laughs> and I never got to meet him. Uh, he passed away a few years later. When I went back, he was gone. But he was really a wonderful Swami, and his whole life was spent in the study of the Bhagavad Gita, and how to find out ways for freeing humanity from suffering, wisdom, insights from the Bhagavad Gita. That's all he did. He used to say, uh, it seems, that oh, if I feel upset, oh, they are, I have the perfect remedy. I just sit quietly and repeat the whole Bhagavad Gita and my mind becomes calm. But that's 700 verses, if you can repeat. If you can do that, I don't think um, that's not really a very practical solution for most of us. But he had the, some of the most wonderful insights, which are relevant here. For example, he talks about, this is relevant to only those who have got a mantra, uh, the name of God those who have been initiated, uh, he would say, for example, his insights, he would say, continuously repeat the mantra throughout all tasks, all activities in samsara. All your activities in samsara, let it be a service to humanity, and all throughout, keep on repeating. Don't forget the japa, the mantra, the name of God. And when you sit down morning and evening to repeat the mantra exclusively, then don't think about samsara. That was his insight. In samsara, don't forget the name of God. And while repeating the name of God, when you exclusively do that, don't even remember samsara. That I'm so, so, I am, um, you know, 
husband, wife, father, mother, or I have these problems, and that is samsara. Easier said than done, but anyway, it's a good insight. There's only one version, Bhagavad Gita. No. There are many, many translations. There are many, many translations. Um, um, the one I, we were introduced to is actually a very simple and austere translation by Swami Swarupananda. I think we have, a, uh, have some copies here. Yes, we have. Swami Swarupanandaji's translation. He, he was a disciple of Swami Vivekananda. It, it doesn't have explanations. It has the original text and the um, word meaning, word by word meaning, and the verse meaning, and once in a while, every other verse, one little note at the bottom, just to elucidate things. Now there is no attempt at any further explanation. So you just want the original, uncolored by anything else, that's a wonderful book to go to. When, when I say uncolored, why, why I'm saying that? There are many, many schools of Vedanta. Bhagavad Gita is a text of Vedanta, but there are many schools of Vedanta, and each school has its own particular view. Uh, I come, for, for example, from the non-dualistic school. So, the fundamental interpretation of the Bhagavad, same Bhagavad Gita, which I base uh, my understanding on, is Shankaracharya's commentary. But that's still, I must be honest, that's still a particular interpretation. There are many other interpretations. So, many, many. That's why if you take the original one, go straight to the original, there's a value in going straight to the original. The original is not so difficult to understand. There are texts like some of the Upanishads are very difficult to understand without a commentary. You'd be helpless if you went to the original. But the Bhagavad Gita is not like that. You don't even need to know Sanskrit. If you, if you follow a um, sort of unbiased, neutral translation like Swami Swarupanandaji's, um, there are other translations, I forget the names. Now, if you want some explanation, not too much, then you have Swami Tapasyanandaji's translation. I think we have a few copies here too. Um, Swami Tapasyanandaji's. If you want a lot of explanation and a modern kind of explanation, then there's Swami Ranganathanandaji's edition in three volumes. So with extensive uh, commentaries on, uh, on each verse. So that's one way of going about it. If you are interested in the classical interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita, um, the way I study is, I study Shankaracharya's commentary on, on the verses, I study Madhusudan Saraswati's commentary on the verses, and this one. This is Sridhar Swami's gloss or tika on the verses. That's one way. The Swami I was referring to, who lived in um, the Himalayas, he, he was in a place called Swargashram, the one I was talking about who was more than 100 years old. He came from another school of Vedanta called Vishishtadvaita. So his commentary on the Gita is very influential, especially uh, among Hindi-speaking people in North India today. Uh, Ram Sukhdasji's Sadak Sanjeevani, I can see people nodding. So some of you have seen the book, but it's a huge book. I had a copy, but I couldn't get it here. It's really, really this big. But you can see there is a, uh, if you know the schools of Vedanta, you can clearly note a Vishishtadvaitic interpretation there. Not very strong, but it's there. Now, what is going on here is, the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, 
Sri Krishna is talking about karma yoga. The choice is that once we are interested in spiritual life, what about the rest of our life? Yes, I'm going to be a spiritual seeker, I'm seeking after enlightenment, and so I shall meditate and pray and um, study. But what about my job and my family and my uh, duties in, in, in life? What do I do with that? Do I give it up altogether and become a monk on a mountaintop or in a jungle? Or do I minimize it, uh, take a part-time job or something like that? And people do that. There are many kinds of approaches to it. Sri Krishna was, uh, is unequivocal. He says, no. Whatever is your duty in life, whatever is your lot in life at present, do that, spiritualize it. How do we spiritualize it? Karma Yoga. What is Karma Yoga? Karma is action and yoga is spiritualization of that action, spiritualized action. What action? The action which you are doing. How do you do that? Two components. The action has to be done for God and one must not be attached to the action or its results. Nishkama Karma. We are using action for our own benefit. Don't do that. You may get benefit from it, but the whole point is it is, to, it is the worship of God and I am not attached to the results. Whatever results may come, that I am not attached to. Now it's very easy to say that, it's but difficult to do. So Sri Krishna makes it uh, much more easy for us. He gives us a way to do karma yoga, a paradigm to understand how can we spiritualize our daily lives. Uh, let's start with the ninth verse. I think we are we were at the eighth verse. Sri Krishna in the eighth verse clearly said, "Action is better than inaction." If you and you know, you remember that he said by forcefully trying to give up action, one ends up being a hypocrite and all of that. So, ninth verse. Here he gives the secret, a technique of transforming our action into worship. Verse number nine. Yajnathat karmano anyatra Yajnathat karmano anyatra Loko yam karma bandhana Loko yam karma bandhana Tadartham karma konteya Tadartham karma konteya Mukta sangha samachara Mukta sangha samachara this world is bound by action other than that done for sacrifice. Therefore, for perform actions for the sake of sacrifice. O Arjuna, being free from attachment. Now, what does this mean? And how does this help us? One way we perform action in the world, things that we do in the world, is bad karma. I, without regard for morality, for decency, even sometimes without regard for the law, people try to grab whatever um, wealth, um, you know, possessions or pleasure comes their way. Now that's bad karma. That is, uh, has bad effects across the board. It's damaging for society, obviously, if somebody violates the law or even the norms of decency or, or uh, um, of moderation. It's bad for oneself because it creates... Uh, tendencies, it creates bad samskaras which are difficult to overcome. I mean, just take for example an addiction. So bad for society, bad for oneself and self-defeating. Why does one do that? In order to be happy. But one is ultimately not happy. 
very soon the negative consequences of say something like addiction or or the related things you know somebody steals or whatever the negative consequences come home very soon um and once life turns into hell then there are bad effects there is a karmic effect of bad karma which comes back later as unhappiness uh, as misery things go badly for such a person so bad karma is a bad idea all around better than that is good karma karma done with desire yes i want to be rich and powerful and uh, successful why because this i think this will make me happy it won't but we think that we think that so that's the worldly person's approach um what kind of worldly person a worldly person who is decent law abiding got his or act together so basically what we consider the backbone of societies all, all around the world decent people in the world we want success and happiness here we are pursuing it here and so they do karma for like exchange you know i do something and i get something back and that's how it goes but one realizes very soon that also is unsatisfactory even good karma and the results of good karma which are which is dharmic karma not against the dictates of of the scriptures the results of that are good you will get happiness good karma leads to happiness happiness in the sense pleasant things happen to you things go your way more or less more or less because ultimately nothing in samsara is going to go your way <laughs> uh, dukkham underneath the condition is basically unsatisfactory which the french existentialists uh, they came across existential angst that even when things are going well you still are unhappy with the things in the the way the world, world is organized way life happens to be is there anything beyond that yes that is where vedanta begins that it is true that god exists it is true that that moksha freedom from suffering is possible it is true that freedom from karma is possible and here at this point when you realize spiritual life is possible not only possible why should i go in for spiritual life because that alone guarantees true lasting happiness nothing else does it takes a mature soul to come to this this conclusion that only spirituality in whatever religion in whatever form you 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 come across at the core of every religion is spirituality outwardly you may see temples and churches you may see organizations you may see um, you know um, rituals and so on and so forth but go to the core of any religion there are those great teachers those mystics those wonderful saints and, and their the core teachings of of every religion and there it is all about spirituality and that spirituality its promises that truly happiness is possible a pure lasting deep happiness a solution to suffering is possible that's what the buddha found that was his quest so at that point what happens is in that case let me give up all my worldly activities turn in my papers in the job and uh, head off to the mountains that's what arjuna wanted to do or can i stay in this world and yet transform my worldly activities in such a way that they will help me in spiritual life not hinder me why would karma hinder you notice bad karma of course is going to uh, going to be an obstruction in my spiritual life bad karma is an obstruction in spiritual life 
I can't uh, be a stick-up artist and also be a great meditator at the same time. Um, no. So bad karma is bad. Why should good karma, the, the normal, decent kind in, in the world, be any kind of obstacle? It is an obstacle because, as Vivekananda put it, chains, though made of gold, are not less strong to bind. So a good and pleasant life in this world, and all my energies are dedicated to that, to make, make my next million, or to get the next Pulitzer Prize, all of which are very good. But if that is the goal, then um, you're still trapped in samsara. So, should I give all that up? Sri Krishna says, no. You can continue to do good karma, but a change in attitude is necessary. Change in attitude is necessary. What you are doing for worldly, for worldly success, wealth and fame, um, that itself you can continue to do as a worship of God. Let me give a clear example. This, when I said next Pulitzer, it reminded me. A very clear example we had right here in New York. A very famous um, um, writer, I always forget his name. Um, Salinger. Salinger. J.D. Salinger. They made a movie about him. His famous book... Uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye, they made a movie called Rebel in the Rye, right? I think a couple of years back. Now, he became, he was a very talented writer. Maybe the most brilliant during his time in the 1940s, 50s, I think, 50s onwards. But he became interested in Vedanta and um, to cut a long story short, which they show, I think, a little bit in the movie also. When he learns about Karma Yoga, he decides that the celebrity status, um, the worldly life is not for him, but he loves writing and is good at writing and is miserable if he's not writing. So what can I do? So what he does is, his teacher Swami Nikhilananda, who was in the uh, Eastside Center, taught him how you can go on writing and yet you dedicate it, it to, to God and not for your own sake. Now he was a very determined man it seems. So he took it to extremes. As a result, he went on writing his all, all his life, but he didn't even publish. Yeah, he wrote a lot. The estate has his writings. I mean, they think it's, they're trying to get it out. Maybe there are other masterpieces hidden there. He said, I'm only writing for the Lord. So I don't want to publish. I don't want the money. I don't want the awards. I don't want the fame. Nothing. Now, that was his karma yoga. That was his karma yoga. Now, can you, can we, don't look so serious, you can still publish. <laughs> if you consider that as a service to society. If, in fact, in his later works, Franny and Zui and all, you will find Karma Yoga, Raja Yoga, <laughs> it's, uh, the words are literally strewn there. He writes about Swami Vivekananda's books, Raja Yoga and Karma Yoga, in, in one place he writes, Salinger. He says, these two delightful little books are modern classics which our American youth would do well to carry in their pockets. American youth are not carrying in their pockets, not in their Kindle, but anyway. <laughs> but that was his view. So one can see how alternatively, if he had published, that also could have been a service to society. right? So how do we do that? How can we transform our actions 
so that they do not bind us, so that they become a part of our spiritual life. So Sri Krishna gives an example here. The example he gives is, I'll give you the basic idea first. Karma yoga, do it for God and do not be attached to the results. It sounds rather dry and difficult. Think of it this way. Krishna's idea is basically this. Think of it this way. Every action has two aspects. You, the doer of the action. Karta. Now, Karma Yoga says that renounce this agency, Kartritva. God does everything. Have that attitude. It's so difficult. The moment you try to do it, you automatically feel that you are doing it. The moment I try to do something, I automatically feel I am doing it. So difficult. What Sri Krishna says is that these are two aspects of every action. Agency, Kartritva, that I am doing this. And second, the results of the action. Phala. Phala means karma. Phala means the results of the action. Now, think of the ritualistic worship which is done, for example, in temples. In Hindu temples or in, at home also, what, you, what we call puja. Puja is a worship. So, in a puja you have a deity and you have mantras which are chanted and flowers which are given, offered and you meditate and you put food offerings. So you do a ritualistic worship of God with many things. And there are many activities involved. Some of them are physical, some of them are verbal like, like chanting and singing, some of them are mental like meditation. So a lot of activity goes on and you're doing the puja for what? It's all centered around God. In your worship room or in the temple or the priest does it in the temple. So the agency, the agent becomes a pujari, a worshipper of God. And the results of action, every Hindu knows that. The delicious results of action are the offered food, prasad, the food offerings. So you offer it to God. God is on a perpetual cosmic diet, so God doesn't eat much. God watches his weight, so all the food is left over for us. Now these... Divine leftovers. Yeah, I just coined that. <laughs> that is called prasada. That is the prasada. So beloved to, to Hindus. So now that is distributed. You distribute that and you take a part of it yourself as offered food. Food offered to God. I have seen monks and there are priests also in temples who eat only prasada. Who will not eat anything except what is offered. Uh, Holy Mother, Masharada used to say, in all your food, always mentally offer it to God before eating it. Make it a habit. This is a kind of mindfulness because we are going to eat anyway. So make it a, a point. In major meals in our order or in many orders across the in ashrams, you chant Brahmar, Panam or some mantra is chanted. So consciously you remember God. But often we take snacks or something else. Just a glass of water. But mentally offer it to God and then take it. It becomes a mindfulness exercise where you, uh, you are reminded of, uh, of thinking about God throughout the day. So offer it to God. It becomes prasada. But why only food? What Krishna says is money, your salary. That's also a result of your action. If you get praise, if things people are benefited, whatever happens, all of that is prasada. Notice, in prasada, it's not the food which matters. Contrary to what many may think. In prasada, you generally don't uh, ask that, no, I don't like that prasada, I like this prasada. No. Because all of it is, it's com coming from God. 
So, in the same way, the karma, results of karma, what are the results of karma? Whatever is happening in your life, good and bad, sweet and sour, whatever is happening in your life. Now we react to that. We want the good things and we avoid the painful ones. But if it is prasada, I like, like mangoes, I don't like prunes. But if it's prasada, I'll take it. I can't reject it if a prune comes to my hand. <coughs> because it's prasada. It doesn't matter what the fruit is. You understand the attitude? At least those who are practicing Hindus, you will know. If it's just offered to, to you, here um, uh, mangoes and prunes, you choose. Oh, I'll take the mango. Or somebody says, here, take a prune. No, I don't want it. But here is prasada. doesn't matter whether it's a mango or a prune. You have to take it because it's coming from God. Now, if all the, the results in our life, the things which come to us in life, if they are prasada, if you can treat it like that, your whole attitude to your life will change. There is nothing, nothing which you are annoyed about, nothing which you can... Or at least you are not allowed to be annoyed about it. Nothing that you are allowed to be irritated about. Nothing that you are allowed to, you know, why is this happening to me? You are getting prasada. And this will come only when we convert our, our activities to puja, worship. So whatever you are doing in life, convert it into worship, puja. When you get up from your morning meditation, which is puja, of course. But then when you go to the kitchen to cook, that's puja. It's not cooking. When you go out and drive to work, that's puja. The drive itself is puja. When you go at your work and you meet your co-workers, you are, that's puja. You're meeting, the, meeting God in those forms. When your clients come to you, you're, you're worshipping God in that form. That's puja. I've given you the example once of... Um, an interesting experience I had uh, that was in that was many years ago. I was passing through Lucknow Airport late at night in India, and I was the only passenger and we dressed like this. And the security people there, like the TSA here, so they sort of pat you down, and uh, they are called the CISF, the Central Industrial Security Force. I was the only passenger, and there are many of them, one, one, uh, one, and many of them. So the the the, the sergeant there. He says, he sees a monk and he says, well, Swami, tell us something. I said, here? You know, if you remember, in, I don't know if they still have them in India, they're little boxes. They'll make you stand on top of that and pat you down. So he said, you stand here on the box and give us a talk. That was late in the night, 11 o'clock, 11.30, I don't know, nearly midnight. I said, here? He said, yeah, tell us. I was just thinking, what to say? And he called the others, the men and women who were there. They came with their guns and everything and they're standing around. That's my audience in the middle of an... <laughs> Middle of an airport, near midnight. I was thinking, what do I say? And I said to him, it was Uttar Pradesh, UP. So many of them worship Hanuman, the God in the form of Hanuman. So I said, do you worship Hanuman? Do you do, you do puja? Do you do puja? And the sergeant said, yes. Every day when I leave home, I offer flowers at the feet of Lord Hanuman. I said, very good. As these hundreds and thousands of people go past you every day, do your duty, gently, but politely, but firmly, to the best of your capacity, mentally thinking, as one person goes past you, you have offered one more flower at the feet of Lord Hanuman. 
and uh, this way whole day and so the, he was so happy in hindi he said are wah din bhar hanuman ji ka puja wow whole day is the puja of lord hanuman yes you can do that you can convert your whole day into the worship of god i am reminded of what that swami said ram sukhdas ji how to keep alive that awareness i am worshiping god very beautifully that old swami he he said throughout your day when you are in samsara when you are engaged in samsara do not forget the mantra and when you are repeating the mantra you know when just time for mantra only do not ever remember samsara <laughs> we do exactly the opposite throughout the day oh day has gone i don't remember the mantra i didn't remember god even once and sitting in time meditation all sorts of thoughts all sorts of thoughts of samsara keep crowding in and my mind does not concentrate there is a story think about it we know the story but remarkable in the kali temple of dakshineshwar the uh, rani rashmani who's the founder and owner of the temple has come to visit the temple and sri ramakrishna is just a priest in the temple today sri ramakrishna is sri ramakrishna we think he is an avatar and we worship him and all of that but at that time he is just a priest and rani rashmani was a noble lady and she was the founder of the temple owner of the place she comes to see how the to join the worship which she did she had great reverence for um, sri ramakrishna she is sitting sit next to sri ramakrishna sri ramakrishna is worshiping singing now the the rani rashmani uh, the rani had come from i think she had come from court or she was thinking about a case which was going on in court and she was thinking about that not mindful of the worship which is going on sri ramakrishna looks at her he can see through our minds it's not very comfortable to sit next to such a person <laughs> i have met at least a, at least two that i know and <laughs> i still remember in one case as thinking something and this swami is standing behind him the old swami he turns around and looks at me and tells me exactly what i was thinking so may enough to make the hair on your head on your hand on your body stand on its end it it can be quite scary but it's not bad because they are you know that they are on your side they are really sympathetic it might be embarrassing but uh, but they really want your welfare they wouldn't do anything to harm you Yeah. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna looks at looks at her and sees what's in her mind and slaps her in front of everybody and and rebukes her what to think of such things here too are you not ashamed Of course and people were horrified i think the bodyguards were ready to uh, give Sri Ramakrishna a good thrashing but uh, she stopped everybody and said the master is right thakur and that he is right i was not paying attention to to the worship i was thinking my point here is thank god he is sitting quietly in a picture when we are sitting <laughs> and meditating this one swami said his hands would be aching by the number of slaps he would have to get you have to get liberally strew around us I don't know if this is relevant, but let me just share with you. Once, many many years ago, I was a young novice, and I went to one of those swamis whom I said 
I, I always felt that he, and, and I'm, uh, I'm convinced he knew what was in your mind. He had those powers. But I was a novice. At that time, I didn't understand these things. So I went and did pranams to him, the two swamis sitting, this great swami I was talking about, and another swami, younger, extraordinary, very brilliant and uh, extraordinary scholar and, and a very talented musician, so and so forth. But I was a little scared of him, the other swami, the younger one. And the two were talking. I went in and there and did pranams. And suddenly this older swami, he looks at me, out of completely out of context it seemed to be. Suddenly he said, um, when you look at me, what do you think? I blurted out, I don't, till today I don't know why, why I did that. I blurted out, I said, Swami, I think you can uh, read my mind, you know what's in my mind, but I'm not afraid. But I'm not afraid. And when you look at him, what do you think? I looked at him, I don't know why I blurted this out in front of him. I, I think that he too can understand what's in my mind, but I'm afraid of him. And then this old Swami looks at the other Swami and says, See, see, what did I tell you? And the other Swami looked suitably grim and he, as if he's acknowledging something. Said, like, yes, I see now. So it was not about me. That older Swami was teaching something to that, that other Swami. <laughs> but it was in the, very interesting. So how much Sri Ramakrishna would have to slap, give, give slaps all around, not paying attention. Uh, convert your daily activity into worship. If you do that, what will happen is, Throughout your activity, you'll be keep you'll be keep thinking about God, and when you sit down morning and evening to think only about God exclusively, your mind will not think about samsara. It mind gets trained. <clears throat> the mind gets trained to it. So this attitude of worship, summing it up, make your activities which activities at home in your community in your job, whatever it is, make it into a puja. And you are the pujari. So the agent becomes the pujari. Karta becomes the, the one who is worshipping God. And whatever happens in your life, whatever you get out of that job, <clears throat> whatever comes to you in life, all of that is what? Prasad. Prasad buddhi. <clears throat> prasad buddhi. When you have prasad buddhi, that means the attitude. Buddhi means attitude. The attitude that it is the offered offering to the Lord which is coming back. Then you don't choose. Then you don't complain. Then you don't grumble. Then you don't th think, why are bad things happening to me? Why are good things happening to the other person? It's like saying in the prasad, why did he get the mango and why did I get the prune? It doesn't matter. It's prasad. Yeah. Alright. <clears throat> now this is the meaning of what Sri Krishna said. But he did not say it this way. That's why it takes a little bit of interpretation. Remember, this is very, very old. Very old. He meant to say what I said, but at that time, this the way we do, or Hindus do puja now, it was not there. Big temples and deities and uh, kind of puja that we do. In Vedic times, the mode of worship or ritual was the fire sacrifice called yajna. Now picture, if you will, um, an open altar with a fire pit in between, in, in the middle, where ritualistically a fire is kindled. There are Brahmin priests who they have their roles, and uh, they ritualistic, ritualistically make offerings into the fire, chant Vedic mantras, um, and the Vedic gods, 
would be pleased by these offerings and would grant the wish of the one who sponsored the yajna. The priest acts as an agent for you. You're sponsoring. So you have to swipe your card quite a number of times. And they are expensive affairs. There are a whole range. You could have a Costco kind of yajna and a, a very up, upscale kind of <laughs> yajna also. But, um, and the results would be your wishes would be fulfilled. If you had worldly wishes, your worldly wishes would be fulfilled. If you had otherworldly wishes, otherworldly wishes means I should go to heaven after death. That would be fulfilled. How do you know? It's a promissory note. We promise you, after death you're going to go to heaven. But the payment is now, not after death, not post-mortem. And people had faith, just like in all religion, people had faith. And if you did not want anything, those very, that very ritual would serve to purify your mind and make you fit for spirituality, Vedanta. So that was the whole worldview in those days. Especially the chanting and the rituals had to be performed. They were, they were very complex. And the chanting of the Vedic mantras had to be performed precisely. And it's not all gone out of vogue. Um, so nothing in India ever goes out of vogue. It survives in some form or the other. So the Vedic yajnas are still performed by Hindus. Uh, you will see in any major ritual in uh, Hindu temples. So sometimes there will be something they call a, a havan. In Hindi, we call it a havan. In fact, in one reform school of Hinduism in 19th century, the Arya Samaj, they tried to take it back. So instead of pujas and uh, temples and images, go back to the Vedic fire ritual. So that was, it didn't quite catch on, but the Arya Samaj did that. Um, even now you can see, in some form, in major pujas, for example, in Eastern India, Durga Puja, which is a puja. There's an image and there is a... Very complicated puja. But as a part of that, there is a Vedic fire ritual. So you can actually see that. And you, if you want, if you have never seen it, it's interesting. You can see it on YouTube also. If you Google and Vedic fire ritual or yajna, you can see what, it's, what it looks like. The mantras had to be chanted with precise intonation. And lot dependent on that. So you had to have trained priests. For example, um, there's a very nice story. Not relevant, but I can't resist it. We read the story when we were kids. You know, we, you know, some of you may have seen Amar Chitrakatha comics. So the comics, the story of Vritrasura, the demon, Vritra, the demon. The mantras, the, the moral of the story is that the mantras in the Vedic ritual have to be chanted properly. If you do not chant, if you chant it properly, the results will be as you want it. If you chant it improperly, you may not get results or you may get entirely the wrong result, what you're not looking for. So the story goes like this. Um, one of the great rishis was sorely aggrieved at Indra, the king of the gods. And there's a story behind that and a story behind that story too. I'm not going into that. So this great rishi, the great sage, wanted to take revenge on Indra, the uh, king of the gods, because he had been wronged by Indra. So he performed a Vedic fire ritual. A yajna. For what purpose? To produce a demon. A demon would be born of that fire who would destroy Indra. Which is a big job, big deal because the devas, the, the gods are supposed to be immortal. So to destroy them is no mean task. And here is the king of the gods after all. So now the gods were scared. They had an efficient spy network. They, they got wind of it. So what to do? 
long story short the goddess of learning saraswati made sure that when the rishi was about to chant the mantras he mispronounced it so the mantra he was going to chant is indra shatrun vardhasva let the enemy of of uh, indra grow uh, let the enemy of indra grow here now enemy of indra indra shatru that the, the word it can be pronounced in two ways with accent on the first syllable or accent on the last syllable now if you pronounce it one way it means the enemy of indra the one whom the one who will kill indra if you accent the last syllable or another syllable the, the wrong syllable the meaning will become the one who will be killed by indra and saraswati made sure that there was a glitch in the programming a bug so the rishi mispronounced or missed misaccented the mantra indra shatrun vardhasva gave the right offerings and lo and behold this terrible demon um, steps out of the the sacrificial fire uh, all ready to go and wipe out the gods and he leads his army of demons and attacks heaven uh, takes heaven by storm and and the gods put up a brave fight but they are defeated and um, and so on and so forth long story uh, finally they go to the the gods go to the rishi dadhichi who is a very austere and holy man and they ask this is a deep moral here they said for the welfare of the universe we we have a boon to ask of you and the rishi the sage says what do you want he is a simple old man sitting in his little hut in meditating he said we want to make this weapon which will kill the weapon is called the thunderbolt vajra which will kill this great demon ritra said all right what can i do the weapon is going to be made out of your bones because you are the the most righteous man so your bones uh, that surcharged with your righteousness and power which means he has to give up his body and dadichi immediately agrees for the welfare of the universe i i i can always sacrifice my life and he sits down and in in meditation he gives up the body and the the devas collected the, the gods collect his bones make the thunderbolt and that becomes indra's weapon mounted on his white elephant i don't know if there's a story there white elephant <laughs> uh, anyway and then there's a terrible fight i all remember this from the comic book so <laughs> and he kills the demon but anyway the, the moral of the story is the mantras have to be pronounced correctly so <laughs> um so this was the this was the kind of ritual they were used to in those days and here sri krishna says consider the rituals that you perform o arjuna make work into the ritual by that what does he mean start your fire ritual No, no, no. It would be meaningless. Most to most Hindus also, it's meaningless. Now, most Hindus do not practice that. And today, in twenty-first century in Manhattan, if I say start fire rituals, you'll get the New York Fire Department down here, <laughs> here in no, no time at all. No, no, that's that's not what he means. He says, consider, look at the yagya which you are used to. Consider life itself as a yagya. In fact, I have created life itself as a great ritual. Make your whole life into a worship. into a fire ritual what do you do then all work do it as a yagya as a fire ritual just like puja so you are the worshipper and the results that come out of that which are for the benefit of everybody whatever falls to your share take it as prasada yeah 
So that only in this way will you be able to convert your action into spiritual action. You don't have to give up action, don't, but you cannot leave it as worldly action because that will interfere with your spiritual practice or pull you back. Convert your action, whatever you're doing, into spiritual action. Let my life in the world be a life of service wherever I am. Life of worship, of puja, of yajna. So he says, Yajnathat karmano anyatra lokoyam karmabandhana. Other than in, this is the, the format. And this is an entirely internal shift. Nobody need know. You are not going to light a fire in your office and start pouring uh, oblations in the, uh, accompanied to, with the accompaniment of Vedic hymns. No. You're going to go and sit down at your computer and, um, and get that report out on time. But that in your mind is a worship of the Lord. Because the Lord has said this entire cosmos is a huge fire ritual in which you are there offering. And whatever prasad is given, whatever is the product of that ritual, whatever comes to your plate, money, success, uh, pleasure, take it as coming from God. If it's unpleasant, that also is, is prasad for you. So this is the cosmic view. Now Krishna is going to expand on that. The commentator here, he says, Yajnyavatra Vishnuhu. Yajnyavai Vishnuhu from Taittiriya Sanghita. The commentator says, This yajna, this worship, this fire ritual, this itself is God. Or it's a way to realize God. And he quotes from the Taittiriya, from the Vedas itself, that fire ritual itself is to be seen as God. So when you do the fire ritual, the right attitude is that... Uh, I am worshipping God. Whatever activity you do in life. Now, he expands using the yajna model, the fire ritual model in the next four verses. That's what's going to happen. So keep the fire ritual in mind. He's going to talk about that. Verse 10. Sahayajna praja srishtva Sahayajna praja srishtva Puro vacha prajapati Puro vacha prajapati Anena prasavishyadvam Anena prasavishyadvam Esha vostishtva kamadhuk Esha vostishtva kamadhuk Prajapati, the creator of the worlds, created um, the beings with the sacrifice, with this fire sacrifice and said, by this you multiply in this world. And let this yield you all your objects of desire. He says, Kamaduk is, you know, there is the, the mythical cow in heaven, Kamadhani, whatever you wish, it will give you. Or the, the Kalpataru, the mythical tree under which you sit and you, you uh, mythical means it's symbolic actually, it's symbolic of our mind. When it's properly guided, it gives you whatever you desire in life. So, in days of yore, when um, the universe was created, Brahma, the creator of the universe, he creates the universe with this concept or with this practice of a, of a cosmic fire ritual. You contribute, you do your part in this worship and you will be sustained by it. If you want your objects of desire, you will get that. If you want spirituality and liberation, you will get that too. You know, nowadays there is this concept of deep ecology. 
What is deep ecology? Ecology is our natural environment, the environment we live in and its interconnections. Deep ecology considers human beings as a part of that. We are part of the interconnected web of nature. So it's a big movement now all over the world. It's basically the philosophy behind our green movement uh, here in the West and everywhere else. So it's, it's really important. But this deep ecology concept was there in India thousands of years ago. It's very natural to the Indian way of thinking. We are part of nature, of course. The reason is, in India, the ultimate reality, God or Brahman, is seen as transcended and immanent, present within nature. And we, we go through many lives. So sometimes we are in a human body. Earlier lives we may have been in plant or animal bodies. So there are sentient beings in all, all living creatures. Uh, in animal bodies, in plant bodies, everywhere. And there are beings who are higher than us also. The, the gods we are speaking about, the, the Vedic gods. So this kind of interconnectedness of nature, this deep ecology concept is very natural to the Indian way of thinking. Not so, so much to the Western way of thinking, which derives from um, the Abrahamic way of thinking, from the Old Testament, where initially the idea was that God has given this to you. Be fruitful and multiply. Literally the same words. He says, you multiply here. You, you, this is yours and you multiply. But the difference is this. Here it is stated as um, um, a cosmic ritual in which you participate. You do your bit, you get back from it. And that's the only sustainable way of living. Whereas the way it was stated in um, the uh, Abrahamic traditions was, God has given this to us for you. Now it's open to interpretation. The way it was interpreted for a long time was nature belongs to man. So we are going to exploit it. It's for us. We're going to tame nature. We're going to exploit nature for our benefit. And that went on for a long time. But in this industrial age, when we do it on an industrial scale, its effects on nature and the world are terrible. So everything is thrown out of kilter, global warming and all, all the problems that you see. Um, going around in the world and now thinking in the western world and throughout the world has swung around to this deep ecology idea uh, that no it is not for us we are part of it we are part of it uh, it's not a resource that we can use at will for to satisfy our desires whatever we want because because we are part of it if we damage it we're going to suffer too if we destroy it we'll be destroyed too so this is the idea behind deep ecology and amazingly, the Christian church also, Catholic church also swung around to this point of view. There was actually an encyclical from the Pope. The, from Rome, they gave these yearly um, messages from the Pope. They are uh, written in Latin. I don't know if they're still written in Latin, but they were written in Latin. I think they are still written in Latin. So uh, the, new, the new doctrine in the church is we are custodians of nature. We are trustees of nature. When God gives us nature to us, not to exploit not to, um, it's not like it's an endless resource, we can have a free lunch here, no. It's, it's something that you have to take care of. It's a responsibility. And you are, and there was a, there was a seminar, I remember, when this encyclical uh, came, I was part of the Hindu-Catholic dialogue in Los Angeles. So in uh, Loyola Marymount U University there. And... Um, Father Alexei, who was the Catholic, the priest, the counterpart in this dialogue, he was explaining this, this new approach 
and there was a whole seminar about it. That was when this, the new pope came, Pope Francis. And so I went to him and I said, when he was telling me about it, I said to him, well, congratulations on getting your first Hindu pope. <laughs> he was not amused. <laughs> no, but this is, this is what they're talking about. You will see as we go on, this idea of, of a cycle of nature in which you are a part of it and you play your part or you suffer. Nature also suffers and you suffer too. This idea is so implicit in this. And thousands of years ago, this was part of the spiritual teachings of Vedanta. 11th verse. <clears throat> Devan bhavayata nena Devan bhavata nena Te deva bhavayantuva Te deva bhavayantuva Parasparam bhavayanta Parasparam bhavayanta Shreya paramavapsyatha Shreya paramavapsyatha I'll complete the section, the four verses and then I'll explain. So by this worship the gods, the Vedic gods, the Vedic gods were in charge of different functions of nature. So worship the gods who are in functions uh, in charge of nature and they will sustain you in turn sustain them sustain, basically you, if you look at it in a modern sense sustain nature so nature will sustain you 12th verse ishtan bhogan hivo deva ishtan bhogan hivo deva dasyante yagya bhavita dasyante yagya bhavita Tair dattan apradayebhyo Tair dattan apradayebhyo Yobhung te stena evasa Yobhung te stena evasa If you worship the, the gods, that means the powers of nature and they will sustain you the one who exploits nature without giving back to nature is called a thief here doesn't say nature it says the devas the vedic gods but if you investigate what were the vedic gods they were actually the powers in charge of uh, different uh, um, forces of nature 13th verse yagya shishta shino santo yagya shishta shino santo mutyante sarvakil bishai mutyante sarvakil bishai bhunjate te twagham papa bhunjate te twagham papa ye pachantyatma karanat ye pachantyatma karanat those who take the remnants of the uh, of the yagya prasad they are freed from all the bad effect, effects of karma. But the, those who cook for them, literally says, those who cook for themselves, they eat sin. Literally, that's the word is, which is used. So, just not, not just food being cooked. All our activities. I have set it up so that I and me and mine, this is the one who is going to benefit. First person. <laughs> I benefit. He says, you are eating sin. Do it as a service to the world. Whatever comes out of that, you can sustain yourself on that. And that is perfectly alright. That is spiritual. 14. Annad bhavanti bhutani 
ಅನ್ನಾಭವಂತಿ ಪರ್ಜನ್ಯಾದನ್ನಸಂಭವ ಪರ್ಜನ್ಯಾದನ್ನಸಂಭವ ಯಜ್ಞಾಭವತಿ ಪರ್ಜನ್ಯೋ ಯಜ್ಞಾಭವತಿ ಪರ್ಜನ್ಯೋ ಯಜ್ಞಕರ್ಮ ಸಮುದ್ಭವ ಯಜ್ಞಕರ್ಮ ಸಮುದ್ಭವ from from food comes from food are sustained all these beings we live on food and food the crops they they are they food comes from crops from nature and the crops they they grow because of rain and rain comes because of the the vedic fire ritual a kind of natural cycle you say wait just a minute what did you see at the end you know till this point we understand because we have a very naturalistic way of thinking now yes i understand there is a cycle of nature and um, so rainfall and crops and food and it all goes around and around but where is the where did the vedic fire ritual come in between so you have to understand it in the deep ecology sense you take care of nature ta- nature takes care of you but again i must be clear literally what krishna is saying is that you perform the yagyas the, the fire rituals the gods take care of nature and nature provides you with rain and the rain provides you with um, abundance of crops and these crops give you food and on food you and your children are sustained so this is the cycle which goes on 15 karma brahmod bhavam vidhi karma brahmod bhavam vidhi ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಾಕ್ಷರಸಮುದ್ಭವಂ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಾಕ್ಷರಸಮುದ್ಭವಂ ತಸ್ಗತ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ತಸ್ಗತ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ನಿತ್ಯಂ ಯಜ್ಞ ಪ್ರತಿಷ್ಠಿತ ನಿತ್ಯಂ ಯಜ್ಞ ಪ್ರತಿಷ್ಠಿತ ಆಲ್ ದೀಸ್ ಆಕ್ಷನ್ಸ್ ದೇ ಆರ್ ವೆರ್ ಡ್ಯೂ ಫೈಂಡ್ ದೀಸ್ ರಿಚುವಲ್ಸ್ ದೇ ಆರ್ ಇನ್ ಇನ್ ದ ವೇದಸ್ ಹಿಯರ್ ದ ವರ್ಡ್ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ವೇದಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದ ವೇದಸ್ ಕಮ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಗಾಡ್ so these the all these actions they are the fundamental teaching of the vedas remember you're talking to an ancient hindu arjuna so this this is this is the way it makes sense to him the central teaching of the vedas is this action this this fire ritual but this fire ritual don't take it just as the literal ritual performed by the priests make your entire life into this cosmic fire ritual this is the creation of god and live like this 16 and this is very concludes the section evam pravartitam chakram evam pravartitam chakram nanu vartayati haya nanu vartayati haya aghayur indriya ramo aghayur indriya ramo mogham patha sajivati mogham patha sajivati this cycle which has been set into motion by me which is a very modern ecological term this cycle this is evam pravartitam chakram this cycle which has been set into motion by me the one who does not abide by this the one who does not see oneself as being a tiny part of a cosmic cycle being integrated into life and nature and society one who is n- does not live like that then how does this person live indriya rama impelled by the the desires of you know sense pleasures i want it i'll grab it does it belong to you does it do good to society are you thinking of the larger good no 
I, this person, it must all come to this body. That person, he says, Aghayu, worthless is the life. Mogam partha sajivati. He lives in vain indeed. indeed. He lives in vain indeed. Why in vain? Because the higher spiritual goal will not be attained. And the preparation for spirituality, enlightenment will not be there. Second, even the worldly goal of happiness, a sustainable good life in this world, a good society, nature, society, and your personal life, all of it is sustainable, good, and, hap- and happy. That also won't be there. Mogam, in vain have you lived. Very soon, unhappiness will be your lot, or will be the lot of such a person. So this is the idea of yagya, the old idea of yagya, fire sacrifice, to be understood as uh, in terms of the modern idea of puja performed by the Hindus, to be understood not as a ritual, but all of life. And Krishna recommends, you think of life like that and continue to perform action, you will be spiritual in no time. You don't have to walk away from action. Just one more thing I must mention here for completion. In the Hindu scriptures, there are actually recommendations. They were called Pancha Mahayagya, the five great sacrifices, like fire sacrifices, which every devout Hindu was supposed to perform. Five. If you say a whole life is, is a kind of big cosmic ritual, yeah, that's still a bit vague. Precisely what do I have to do? Tell me. So five things which a devout Hindu was supposed to do. Brahma Yagya. Brahma Yagya is study and teaching of the scriptures. What the masters have handed down from generations to generation, this valuable spiritual heritage. Study it. Um, come to class. Study it. And then pass it down. Teach it also. That's Brahma Yagya. That, that is the knowledge sacrifice. Yes, sp- spiritual knowledge is meant. Then, um, in Brahma Yagya also is known as Rishi Yagya. The sacrifice to the great spiritual masters. Then Deva Yagya. Um, sacrifice done to the Vedic gods. Or in modern terms, very few of us here worship the Vedic gods anymore, but worship God in some form. So there should be a daily act of worship on your part. Go to temple, church, or at least a little prayer corner in your room. Something should be there. A particular, your own personal ritual. Deva Yagya. Then, um, then Pitri Yagya. Um, sacrifices to the ancestors. For every Hindu household, this was a compulsory that uh, a, a remembrance and that's there in many religions I know it's there in Judaism definitely so the remembrance of generations past to whom we owe all this you can see that it's a big cycle a part of that cycle is those who give us knowledge a part of that cycle is uh, the power of divinity behind nature a part of that cycle is our own ancestors our own ancestors I'll share a little story with you. It's a little private, but I just remembered. Once I was in uh, Haridwar, which is at the foothill of the Himalayas. And I saw this old temple. And suddenly I remembered something that my mother had told me when I was a little kid. Her grand-uncle, grandfather's brother, was... uh, he was of a monastic tendency. So he had run away from home to become a monk. And they found him and pulled him back and got him married off. But he was always um, you know, sort of aloof from worldly life. And towards the end of his life, 
he went off there was a great spiritual teacher in haridwar in those days um bholagiri so he had many bengali devotees so apparently my mother's grand uncle was one of them he went off and spent the rest of his life in uh, in haridwar he built a temple a little temple on the bank of the river ganga with a with an image installed shiva and he would worship shiva every day and he would spend his time in meditation and that's how he lived and he passed away so i remembered that story and then i asked a monk there do you know of any such such place here in this uh, ancient temple he said yes there is a temple there's a temple right on the river and you, there's only an underground passage to it it was established by a bengali gentleman many decades ago and he he, he worshiped here and he, and he passed away and so we still open it and clean it and put a little flower on on shiva there so i said can you take me there he said all right come with me and i went there but it's so amazing to see somebody whom i never saw uh, one of our ancestors who was so spiritual as to devote the last part of his life decades and decades living in that in that holy city and and worshiping shiva and the same shiva he is gone but shiva is there so i i did my little worship of shiva now that is called you recognize the contributions of the ancestors it's because of such people i felt at that moment that my spiritual impulse that my spiritual um um nature is not mine alone it's not my credit so many people have contributed to it and so it's a blessing of many generations past whom i never knew also so that is another sacrifice you do uh, a, a remembrance of your ancestors and thank them for what we are today and then um how many have we got brahma yagya uh, deva yagya pitri yagya then nri yagya nri yagya nri means human beings so worship human a sacrifice unto human beings so take care of people specifically it meant the guest who comes to you um but then everybody is a guest in christian language it might be called your neighbor so do something for them take care of them um contribute to their welfare that is very popular i mean that that's 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 very powerful in today's world especially in this country the americans are very generous and they they um, and americans here there a lot of volunteering goes on where you take care of society take care of other people so th- that can be contri- uh, construed as nriyagya the sacrifice to the to the to the human beings to the human society around you and the last one is bhuta yagya the sacrifice to the the larger living world around you that includes plants and animals it could be as simple as feeding the birds or keeping a little bird bath or something like that you know uh, taking care of the plants and so on and so forth or on a larger scale so these are the five pancha mahayagya so every devout person devout, devout hindu was supposed to do something you do it in your own way but keep um so this transforms your life into yagya uh, into a into a cosmic fire sacrifice and thus one can perform one's duties one can perform one's duties in in fact it was very well known in ancient times that a guest would never go hungry in ancient india because uh, everybody would want to feed the feed uh 
a stranger who comes to your house. And there are stories of stories of how hungry people would give up their last morsel of food to, to feed a stranger who has come to your doorstep. Yes, you have a question? Which word? Which word? Oh, Sambhava. Arising. Arising, yeah. Food arises from uh, crops, which, which arise from rain. Yes? Yeah, Swamiji, I, I, I don't know why everybody's scared. When you talk to uh, about your great-grandfather or relative hmm. of yours, it, it's, it's probably you, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, who knows? Who knows? It's, it's very clear about it. <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm sure we, we all were somebody in the past. <laughs> yes. Maharaj, my question didn't finish. My question is the following. Um, Tarlanga Swami of Banaras, he used to say that the Indian people To some extent. I've also heard that. Yeah. That to some extent, uh, one it's a belief. See, reincarnation is a strong belief in India. Among Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs. So many associated beliefs are there. One is the feeling that uh, the same one who was my great-grandfather is now born as my grandson or something like that. Yeah, so that kind of thing is... But it is a belief. And you would see why that would not be unreasonable. If you are drawn to... Um, familiar circumstances. So that culture, that family, that it would it would seem uh, um, more congenial, maybe. Yes. Uh, Swami, you mentioned earlier, so about uh, the question is sense, uh, is karma consequential? Because is it that because of my deeds earlier to my present time or my past, I'm going to go through a good time or a bad time or whatever it goes forward? Or is it that because I'm going through a good time or a bad time today, uh, in a sense I'm filling the balance for something that may come later on? That's exactly the same thing, you know. You're asking whether karma is, uh, is, is, karma is consequential. Karma is causality. Everything that we do, cause has an effect. Everything, action has its consequence. If um, everything is an... Basically, see, you'd say, what is the proof of this? The proof of this is a simple principle of causality. We think that everything must have some cause. So if everything in this universe has a cause, as far as the physical universe goes, then in the moral universe, in our what gives meaning to our lives, why should we not think that there is some cause behind what is happening in my life, in terms of my personal happiness and uh, suffering and sorrow? I was reading a book about Einstein and Kurt Gödel. Um, Albert Einstein was here in Princeton, an institute of advanced studies, and the greatest mathematician at that time, logician, a uh, mathematician, uh, Gödel. And they would walk together. So, Einstein had this principle that the universe is intelligible. 
universe is intelligible means um everything every why has an answer we don't know it but every why has an answer of course he's talking about the physical universe there he's talking about this universe but still the principle stands every why has an answer the book i was writing the author she is very humorous she says basically what he's trying to say is that um which every exasperated parent of a 5 year old knows you know when when you shout at the 5 year old kid why because i tell you that's why <laughs> you don't have to say that because what there is a reason the why has an answer you know if you, little children if you push uh, they will push you everything you say because of this and they'll ask why so it's very easy to ask why <laughs> it's very difficult to give answers after a while but einstein's belief was every why has an answer so in our life also on the events that we see in our life if you ask a why for that there is some ex- explanation now is it provable not in the sense a scientific a physical um, fact is provable because in the modern world cause and effect you can observe both and observe the link but here you cannot observe the cause this is happening to me so there must have been some such cause but it's not observed and i am doing this now this is a cause it will give rise to an effect but i'm not seeing the effect yet so the link is not seen it's just the principle and from the principle has come the law of karma but it's a pretty good good thing to think about um, law of karma if you don't have that then what is the explanation it said there's no explanation it's just random that is not satisfactory and goes against uh, einstein's belief that every why must have an answer or one could say it's the will of god then god is responsible for every little horrible thing good and bad thing that happens in our lives So the law of karma has been found to be the most satisfactory not completely satisfactory but most satisfactory solution but don't go too much into karma and reincarnation that is not spirituality actually in vedanta in buddhism in jainism and in all indian sp- uh, uh, philosophies spirituality was coming out of this this reincarnation again and again that is not spirituality that's going to happen that's that's the way people understood nature that's going to happen anyway that's the problem the solution the answer is coming out of it answer is god realization enlightenment moksha nirvana these were the terms you asked about past life as reminded um i can end with this i think it was sister christine or nivedita who asked swami vivekananda about past lives can we know and how can we know what we went past we are very curious and swami vivekananda scolded her never never be curious about such things he said sufficient unto the day the evil thereof you can't bear the problems of one life and you want to remember what you went through in past lives see what we were in past lives you want a good you want an answer look at your own life that's a pretty good a good indication of what has gone on in our past lives the billiard ball the way it comes at you across the billiard table it's a pretty good indication of the way it has been knocked around earlier the trajectory it's coming at so the what we see our tendencies our likes and dislikes the general tenor of my life it shows a lot about my past life on that ground yeah, so the whole point is convert your life now into karma yoga catch hold of god and try to realize god 
and then he will come the next verse he will come next is there is a time when you will come out of this you need not do karma yoga anymore he will say for a person who is completely god oriented who thinks of god all the time is immersed in god consciousness this idea of karma yoga this idea of a cosmic fire ritual this is no longer re- required so this is a preparatory practice but one that we would do very well to emulate let me end here i'll do the shanti and then we have a couple of announcements om shanti 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 hari om tat sat श्रीराम कृष्णारूपण मस्तू